welcome to the first ever episode of The Lost Boys. I'm Tandy, joined uh, by Bo Matt Courier. Say hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. I'm there Matt. There it is. There it is. All right. That, we got to keep that trend going. Me and Ross do that all oh, the yeah. time when we're doing commentary. So, yeah. Uh, I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to talk about Lorcana. Matt, how are you feeling about this brand new game from Disney and Ravensburger? Oh, I'm really excited. I. Can't wait to play. I can't wait to, you know, start singing songs from Aladdin at my opponent as they, you know, lose to me. Uh, this game is super interesting and it's not even out yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I know that uh, you and, and Brayden uh, Bowdish have been playing a little bit uh, before, you know, they even had the full set previewed. You had been yeah. proxying up some some of the cards they have previewed and building, you know, uh, on the weaker side of things, uh, you know, those kind of decks, it's like all commons or whatever. And yeah. uh, we ended up playing a little bit at the Waffle House last week, and that kind of gave me a little bit of the bug. But uh, so far, like when you were playing with those cards, like, you know, uh, what did you feel when you were playing as far as like introducing yourself to the engine of the game? I was interested as soon as I started, you know, even months ago, they, they're showing individual cards, kind of trickling them out. And uh, I think it was Friends on the Other Side, this card that just, it says draw two cards, but it's also a song. And it says you can just play it without paying its cost, just yeah. for free. Uh, that mechanic by itself got me interested. And then we started getting closer, and I see people talking about decks online. And it's clear that there are, like, enough cards that people are actually able to start building decks. So that's when I was like, all right, let's roll up our sleeves, get in here and see if this is actually, you know uh something i want to be playing a lot of um so we printed up some proxy decks uh and started jamming and it's like it was, you could immediately tell it's super deep there's a lot you can do with the cards uh tons of decisions during the gameplay uh and that got me super hyped for the release uh which we are coming up on you know, you uh, you were a little cooler on it, but then you went to Gen Con this past weekend. Yeah, so and... it turns out playing half a game in Waffle House is not necessarily going to sell you, especially when it's all weak commons. It can't actually win the game. I think, you know, we, me and Brayden had played about 10 minutes of a game, and then our food got there, and I was just like, let's just pack it in, you know? I was planning on going to Gen Con for quite a while. My wife, Callie, works for uh, the Gen Con, like, you know, planning the whole event for the year round. And, uh, you know, we got our tickets uh, a while back and I was excited to go to Gen Con just because Gen Con is sweet. And I wasn't necessarily like high on, on Lorcana or anything like that. Um, upon getting there, uh, I hear just stories upon stories from magic players who are like trying to get into this game. And they, that like, it, the demand is through the roof, right? Like they had to yeah. set up, barriers so that they could form giant lines that were you know roughly two or three uh pair you know side by side but a mile long yeah and i don't mean like, that like oh like oh yeah it's probably like a mile like that i there was a point where i'm pretty sure that the line was about maybe a half a mile long but it, it was like all the way across the convention center out the door and like down the block and you were having to stand outside sometimes for like 30 minutes in the 90 degree heat and it was pretty humid too so i you know i don't i know they had they had the line starting the day before at 6 p.m you could go sit in line yeah. like you're waiting to get uh you know a new book or going to a concert to get concert tickets from taylor swift or whatever before they sell out on Ticketmaster. I'm old. I don't know how these things work anymore. But anyway, people were like camping out like to, to, to buy product. 
And at first yeah. I was just like, that's that's not something I, I want to do. And um, and then like that night, you know, uh, I'm just like not really having a great time because um, one of my friends had to leave for an emergency and I just like didn't have that many people to hang out with. And, you know, I, I was just kind of wanted to find Brayden after dinner and just like hang out with him and see what he was doing. And he just brought these two uh, pre-constructed decks that they had been selling yep, three different the pre-cons, decks. the three starter decks. But he just sat down across from me with two of them and said, do you want to play some more Kana? And I said, well, is it just the same thing we were playing the other day at Wallfoss? He goes, no, these are like the, the legitimate pre-constructed decks that, that they are selling. And he had gotten a few when he was standing in line. He stayed in line for a couple hours to get all this stuff. And I, I played for, what, I don't know, probably three or four hours straight. And, and like... Wow um we ended up uh playing you know three three to five games and then some and i was just like wow the engine feels much better than i thought it was going to um you know actually learning what was important like in the games like when to 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 try to you know progress to the end game versus uh setting up your side of the board to be a little bit stronger versus their side of the board in case they started trying to go for the end game um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pieces started to come together for lack of a better. And when, when that happened, I didn't need to play anymore. I was just like, this game is going to be good. And the, the audience is very clearly there. And this is something that like, great, we can just like dive head first into, um, yeah. <laughs> while we're sitting there, uh, you, do you know, Steve Stillman? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, partner of one of the scry babies. If y'all are anyone watching this is uh, into commander, the scry babies are, an awesome commander podcast slash YouTube video uh, series and uh, run by Lewis Stardust and Tori of the vast and Tori of the vast is Steve Stillman's partner. And Steve has been playing magic for a little while, and, but has started to get into like one piece. And he was actually there for the one piece regionals that they were having. And I saw him when I was just like walking through Lucas Oil stadium at Gen Con, right? There's just a bunch of people playing uh, card games in the middle of Lucas Oil stadium. That was really cool. But I ran into Steve and I told him like, yeah, we're, we, you know, we're, we've been uh, working on some more kind of stuff and playing and having some some fun. And uh, that night um, he walked over. We were in the magic area and he saw me and came and sat down and he said, what's this? And I said, this is the Lorcana. This is the game we're talking about. And uh, he's like, can we try? And him and his friend were both who had come for um, one piece, both sat down in mine and Braden's seat. And me and Brayden just became their coaches and like just told them how to play. Yeah. And I had just learned how to play, nice. but I was already like, oh, no, I get it. You tap this thing. You draw two cards. Yeah. Here, this Don't is a know. land or a spell, blah, blah, blah. Right. You just get into everything so fast. And we're as magic players like who play competitively and who play a bunch of different games, we understand that there's just a lot of similarities between resource systems, um, jockeying yeah. for position on board to leverage your pieces against theirs. And finding a way to progress to the end game without sacrificing your board position. You just always want to be looking for the micro edges. And Steve is one of those players who's just like naturally good at games like this. And so uh, he decided to, uh, you know, play the deck on my side. And since he knew me a little bit better than Brayden and the other person whose name I forget, uh, he goes by uh, Lego Lego Pizza, I think is his name yep. on, on Twitter. He's a super cool guy. And um, uh we they just played like five games in a row. They sat there for like an hour, and we were just talking, gushing about the mechanics, gushing about the game, the cards in each other's decks, explaining what we think that the game's going to become over time, because yeah. of how rich and deep the engine is, but also 
because of the IP, Disney, you know, animated Disney oh, yeah. movies or whatever. It's, there's just so much to draw from. Every single card that I would play would be a character that I knew from my childhood in a spot in the movie or TV show that I knew them from. And like that was the incarnation of the card and the abilities kind of match what they're doing in the movie. And I just had this stupid grin on my face for just hours. It was so much fun. That was my Gen Con experience. It was a blast. Matt, what, how was your Gen Con experience? I did not go to Gen Con. No, I wasn't Matt, able no. to go. Okay. No, but I've speaking of Gen Con, though, I was there last year. And I mean, anyone that plays uh, board games, plays card games, tabletop uh, miniature games etc knows about gen con it's like it's the biggest it's the biggest in north america at least uh tabletop gaming convention mm-hmm. like you mentioned lucas oil stadium right that's where they were having a tournament yeah that's not and the that's not where gen con is that is one of the five large of places con. where gen con exists yeah so it really says something like every year at gen con there's like the big thing or whatever that people are lining up for this year it was lorcana Yes. And like it was what people were talking about. Yeah. And I, I, it's hard to explain, you know, hopefully when uh, when we talk about this a little more on social media, you can grasp the scope of how many people were there for Locana. I remember seeing a picture from Thursday. There was a sea of people just wall to wall in the Indianapolis Convention Center trying to get into the vendor area just to buy a Locana. And because it was such a cluster, they ended up having to work with Gen Con staff to create a giant queue so that people could wait in line. And because they didn't want a small number of people buying the majority of their product and hoarding it or whatever, they started having to limit the amount of product that you could buy. And they would even go so far sometimes as to clip your badge to make sure that you couldn't double buy or triple buy or like over buy. Right. And so... The game was so popular that they had to implement multiple measures to not only protect the consumer, but also to protect themselves. And that was just such an eye-opening thing to see. Just the demand was so high for this thing that doesn't exist yet. And I got to tell you, man, I I waited in line twice uh, out of the four days. There were two days where I just like waited in line for like quite some time to try to get some some product. And one of the days it was it was like uh, Friday and it was a little later in the day. It was like 4 p.m. The line wasn't that long because it had already mostly dissipated and I was able to to get through in about 30 minutes. But they sold out every other day by 2 p.m. or something like it was so hard to get product and the lines. And that's early with the day limits. Long. Right. With the limits. That's they're selling like one box to every single person in that enormous line. Yeah. Uh yeah, just one box per person, and they're still, you know, selling out every day. Yeah, but the the one thing that I want to stress is that when I was talking to people on Twitter about this, and uh, there was a lot of um, disbelief from the Magic community, which is where uh, Bo Matt and I come from. We're we're big into Magic the Gathering tournaments scene, like we're just heavy on that. But like the majority of the people that we're inter- interacting with on Twitter about Lorcana are they just don't believe me like they don't believe that the line's that long they don't believe that like the people in line are are genuine about wanting to buy the product they think it's just like a bunch of scalpers and there were some scalpers right right? like people get in line to buy stuff to sell it like that happens at these types of events like this is a unique experience this is the release of a game 
And the buzz is high enough that like you could probably just make a few bucks off of it. And like, yeah, those people exist. But what I saw in that line was just smile from cheek to cheek, from ear to ear and families of three, four, five, multiple kids all in the lines together to get Lorcana so that they can all play together. And I cannot express how much joy I felt watching people of that age getting into a game and with their family, right? When I was growing up, getting into Magic, it was actually relatively difficult to get other of my family members into the game because like, it was kind of nerdy. Normally, it would be very difficult to convince your spouse or your child or your father or your mother to play a game with you um, because you would need that game to basically share the interests that the both of you have so that you could come together to play the game. And I think that Disney is just the perfect IP to allow families to come together and play together. And I think that that's why it's going to be so big. Yeah, absolutely. That's I'm really looking forward to that. Like, like I said, I didn't get that experience at Gen Con, but it's uh we're coming up on less than two weeks now uh, when this starts hitting local game stores. I really do think we're going to uh, see people coming out with their families to try this game for the first time. And I'm really excited to see that. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's talk about our experiences with the precon decks, because um, you probably don't have that much experience playing with them yet, right? They, they didn't. I did get in a couple games online. Cool. So the precons themselves, there's there's three preconstructed decks, and each of them is is two different colors, and the three precons uh, encompass all six of the colors, right? Yes. And so each one is two colors, and these preconstructed decks, uh, which you know we'll we'll have some links for you in the in the show notes and things like that, so you can check out the preconstructed decks for yourself. Um, but the first preconstructed deck is Steel Sapphire. The second one yep. is Ruby and Emerald. And the third one is Amber and Amethyst. Now, when I say those words to you, you probably just like have no idea what I'm talking about, right? And you would be correct in thinking that because these are the new color identities that uh, Lorcana is is using for uh, their factions. And uh, I think that they actually perfectly represent, you know, the, the thing that they're trying to do. And a lot of the video games and board games and stuff that I've played recently use a lot of these same terms to kind of reference the type of magic that they're using. And I think that Disney is just like really leaning into that with with this. Uh, So let's go over the first one, uh, Steel Sapphire. Matt, why don't you tell us what Steel is and then tell us what Sapphire is, and then we'll talk about some of the cards in the deck that really reflect what these uh, colors are trying to do. Steel is the most heavily associated with uh, direct damage, just being able to uh, play your actions to do two, maybe three damage to a chosen character and get it off the board. Uh, it's got cards like Smash, Grab Your Sword, Fire the Cannons. So would you say that yeah, this, the, the Steel is way more about being aggressive and being about efficiency, more like a red deck or like a Boros deck in Magic? When you talk about aggression uh, in most games, you're talking about progressing your game plan, uh, progressing the win condition of the game the fastest. And in, ma- in Magic, that would be attacking your opponent a lot, getting in a lot of damage. In Lorcana, the way you win the game is by getting to 20 lore. So an aggressive do- deck in Lorcana is playing creatures that are just trying to quest and get as much lore as possible, but you actually don't accomplish that by attacking. So Steel, as a color, does have uh, creatures that are good at challenging, at attacking your opponent's characters, 
But when you're doing that, you're actually controlling your opponent's creatures, not progressing your own win condition. So you look at a card like Captain Hook Forceful Duelist. Uh, this is a one cost for a one two, and it has Challenger two, which means while it's challenging, it gets plus two strength. This is you know a, a really cheap creature. If you looked at this in Magic, you might think uh, it's trying to win the game quickly, but this is actually a pretty defensive card. Right. In that when you play it, you're going to be able to uh, kind of punish your opponent for challenging with for questing with a larger creature because you're just going to be able to trade up, use your one cost Captain Hook to get that thing off the board. So Steel actually, uh, through these challenger characters and these damage actions, is kind of more of a controlling um, color, but using its creatures to control the board. That sounds a lot like what White is trying to do in Magic, right? And, 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 you know, correct me if I'm wrong, like, White has a lot of these, like, defensive measures, but with, like, some uh, kind of, like, protective element like a drawback that makes it so it's not like a direct challenge to your opponent's creatures right it has you have to go through some caveat to tap them down by paying mana or you can only deal damage to a creature that's attacking you or something like that and i feel like challenger uh adds that to like a creature where um the way that this game works like you said you're not really attacking when you're gaining victory points through the lore system. Um, You are essentially sacrificing the ability to uh, challenge your opponent's creatures while simultaneously making them prone to your opponent's attacks by gaining the lore points. And so a card like Captain Hook is not very good when it's not challenging. And so if you tap it or you exhaust it to gain a lore, your opponent can eat it pretty easily with like a, a one mana two, two creature or a two mana two, three creature. And that makes captain hook, maybe one of the worst cards to be questing with. And that type of ability challenger makes it so that those are almost always going to be things to use for challenging. And very rarely, maybe your opponent has to have a clear board or you have to be very wide and, and like established on the battlefield before you ever start using captain hook to, to, to quest. Now, the other side of the thing is Sapphire. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Sapphire is about? So Sapphire, uh, by far the strongest part of Sapphire's identity uh, in the first chapter is Ramp. Uh, called Rampant Magic. I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be called Rampant Lorcana as well. Uh, ramping means just getting more resources into your inkwell uh, faster than your opponent so that you can start playing uh, bigger cards uh, before they're able to. The one card I want to 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 just showcase exactly what this is we're going to talk about mickey mouse detective so mickey mouse yeah. detective it costs three ink uh, it's a one three and the, its ability is get a clue when you play this character you may put the top card of your deck into your inkwell face down and exert it so for those of you who have a background in magic this is essentially wood elves or sakura tribe elder right. like it's just a, a cheap creature that comes down and gives you an extra resource right and there's actually uh there are multiple different cards in this starter deck alone, and then there's even more, like maybe three more in the uh, in the rest of the first chapter itself uh, in Sapphire that ramp you, that put extra cards into your inkwell. So that's definitely something that they're pushing uh, in this first set. And Sapphire is Sapphire is the color of ramp of getting more resources to play larger cards than your opponents, and that definitely comes through in this starter deck. All right. So uh, for the second precon deck, this one is going to be Ruby and Emerald. 
and ruby is uh, the equivalent to red, and emerald is the equivalent to green. Now, that doesn't mean that they share the same type of uh, identity of color of Magic the Gathering. In fact, I would say that they're quite, quite different. Um, let's go over this ruby and emerald deck a little bit. Why don't you tell us about some of the cards in ruby and what ruby's core identity is, Matt? So the the strongest singular identity of ruby is the keyword evasive. Um, evasive in Lorcana is pretty similar to flying in magic. If a character has evasive, that means uh, it can only be challenged by another character that has evasive. So effectively, what this means is that if you have a card like Pongo, Old Rascal, which is uh, four cost, two, three, uh, with two lore that has evasive, if your opponent doesn't have anything with evasive, you can just start exerting questing every single turn with Pongo, and there's not all that much your opponent can do about it with their characters. All right, quick question that for is, you, Matt. Um, yeah. If I play a Pongo on turn four and it has evasive, am I allowed to tap it then to immediately quest and gain two lore? No. So uh, just like what in Magic we call Summoning Sickness, the exact same thing applies in Lorcana. Uh, characters can only quest or challenge if you've already had them in play uh, for an entire turn. So now, you play the Pongo on turn four, you can't do anything with it until turn five. Now, uh, I'm assuming that there are going to be some cards that allow you to exert things the turn they come into play. So just because it has summoning sickness doesn't mean that it's useless for a turn. Um, and we'll get to more of that type of stuff later. But that is where the engine stands at the beginning, right? When you play a creature, it has right. no abilities until you get to untap with it. Your opponent can do stuff to it. But it's not ready yet, right? It has to take a turn to get ready. Um, yeah. Now, uh, that is Red's identity seems to be relatively aggressive, you know, somewhat similar to in Red and Matt in uh, in Magic the Gathering. But um, what what does the interaction look like for Ruby in in Lorcana? So Ruby has uh, is the most focused on like very direct what in Magic we would call hard removal. Um, case in point, Dragonfire. Dragonfire is just a five-cost action. It's very simple. Banish chosen character. Just whatever that thing is, get it out of here. Yeah, I think uh, that, that that's a pretty good, you know, uh, starting point for what does it take to remove a character from Lorcana's battlefield, right? And yes, Dragonfire absolutely. is the dark banishing. It's terror, whatever you want to call it. Dragonfire, five mana. That's the baseline for removing a creature. Now, there are other right. ways to remove creatures. There's ways to deal damage or whatever, but if you want to kill the 10-10, the 11-mana thing from the next set or what, you know, if you want to kill the biggest creature in play, it's going to cost you 5 ink. Right. And this is actually a point where uh, I'm going to get into a little bit of card comparison with another card that is in that is very comparable to Dragonfire that's in Sapphire. Uh, and that's Let It Go. Uh, Let It Go is a five-cost action that's also a song that says uh, you choose a character and put it into its controller's inkwell. So okay. it also okay. gets it out of there. It does give your opponent a, uh, a resource they can use. So they can play a more uh, expensive card on their next turn. But it's also five-cost, just like Dragonfire. But the biggest difference, in my opinion, is that that card is inkable and Dragonfire is not. If you look at Dragonfire, it has just a very simple hexagon around its cost. That means you can't actually play this card as ink. Now, that's so important that's... to note because 
that means that some cards will have dual uses, right? So some cards can only be played as a spell while others, maybe they're a little bit weaker on what they actually do, but you can play them as an ink early in the game instead of having them right in your hand. So you kind of curve out. So you look at Let It Go and it has this upside that you can play it as ink if you need to, or if you want to, uh, but it also has a downside where you're giving your opponent a resource even as you're taking their character off the board. But cool. then you look at Dragonfire, you have to pay five ink, and you can never play this card as ink if you just want to get rid of something. Yeah, I think that's going to be a, a real focal point for balance. And I think that they're going to be able yes. to make some really powerful cards that cannot be inked. Maybe they're a little more expensive, but maybe they just do some wild, wild stuff in the game engine. Um, but if they can't yep. be inked, that means that they're just going to be stuck in your hand for a while. And you might see people lean towards something that's a little bit more flexible that has ink. Maybe it has a worse ability, but it's just going to be a better card in your hand uh, more often. And um, that's something that can't really be overstated uh, and how important it can be in games like this. Yeah, it's super important. All right. So uh, red as dragon fire green looks like it's a little different. Uh, what is the green side of this ruby and emerald starter deck? And uh, what's green's kind of color identity? Earlier when we started talking about Ruby, you mentioned it looking like an aggressive color. Mm -hmm. There's there are hints of that with cards like um, Pongo, you know, evasive cards are going to be able to keep getting in there. Right. But I would actually say green is the most aggressive color uh, in the first chapter. And that's because of the lore on the green cards. Oh, so the lore is a little higher on average. Yes, absolutely. You look at. Uh, Mad Hatter Gracious Host in this starter deck. This is a five costs for a two four. It has three lore, and it says whenever this character is challenged, you may draw a card. Three lore for most other for every other color, you have to pay a lot more than five to get a uh, a three lore character onto the board. And Emerald actually, it has Mad Hatter in this uh, starter deck and another card Cusco uh, in the rest of the set. They're both five costs characters that have three lore that is by far the the best way to um to really get a huge lore advantage quickly on your opponent is just play this one card is going to get three maybe even six lore if your opponent can't deal with it right away and that's the kind of the key uh part of aggression in this game is it's not about having a bigger character it's about having a, a character that can get you more lore than you might usually expect. Yeah, and uh, one of the the cards we're going to talk about later, it's the only one I've seen so far, there is a two-mana creature that quests for two lore. And there's not very many, if any, other whole cards in the game so far that do that for that rate. And so I think by default, that one is just going to be one of the more aggressive two-drops because if your opponent doesn't challenge it with a creature or remove it with a removal spell, It's just going to gain a lot of lore very quickly and very early. And then you might be scrapping to claw back into the game, trying to trade off for their creatures. But like if they're just one creature ahead of you, then you're just getting buried. And that's kind of how just how the the combat works and the game works in general. Right. All right. So that's Emerald. And then before that, we talked a little bit about Ruby. The Ruby and Emerald starter will have a link for it down in the description. But let's move on to the third and final pre-constructed deck. That we got at Gen Con. That's going to be the Amber and Amethyst starter. Amber, more of like an orange-yellow color. 
and Amethyst is what I would consider to be black or the evil faction in in Disney. Like this is where you're going to get your real villains, the ones that are just like evil, chaotic, bad, right? Yeah. Whereas Amber, what 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 would you really consider Amber to be? The main themes in Amber are cheap characters and songs. And there there's some cards that play towards both of these. There's also uh you have princess things going on in Amber. Um but mainly uh the the by far the main reason that people are turning to Amber in uh early deck building is for their ability to get a lot of cheap characters out and get paid off for those cheap characters. All right, so Stitch Rockstar is my favorite card in the set. Matt, why don't you give us a rundown of what the card does, and then we'll talk about why it's so cool. So Stitch is a six-cost character. It can be inked. It's a 3-5 with three lore. It says whenever you play an ability, a character with cost two or less, you may exert them to draw a card. And it has another ability that we haven't talked about yet, which is Shift. Stitch has shift four, which means you may pay four ink to play this on top of one of your characters named Stitch. Okay, so, so it's kind of like upgrading your creature, right? Exactly. If there's if you have a uh, Stitch new dog, for example, which is just a one cost two two, uh, you can pay four ink instead of six. Put your Stitch Rockstar on top of it and. You're off to the races on turn four instead of turn six. Now, can you give us a rundown of what the rules of shift are? Uh, I, I I have a pretty good understanding, but I think it's important to really explain it. Basically, when you shift a character onto another character, it has all of the attributes that the uh, the existing character had, except none of its abilities, basically. So yeah. if you already had your Stitch new dog in play, once you've shifted your Stitch Rockstar... You can exert it that turn if you want to. You can quest with it. You can challenge with it uh, because the existing character was already there. Right. If it's been given other abilities by various other cards in the game, those also apply. Okay. And then uh, on top of that, it also has the damage, right? Uh, if if the yes. if the character underneath had taken one or two damage and you shift on top of it, the new one doesn't refresh the damage. It still keeps the yep. damage that was on it. So definitely yeah, important. Definitely important. Um, the thing about shift that I really like is that it allows you to play some of these more expensive cards with awesome enders, battlefield abilities, or, you know, just awesome abilities for just like one to three cheaper than the, the actual cost yeah. of the card. And I think that's going to make for some really neat gameplay that has a couple punishes for it, but also a lot of rewards for it. It's going to be a cool little dynamic. Now, the ability that I love on this card is not the shift. It is adoring fans. And it says whenever you play a character, with cost two or less, you may exert it and draw a card. Now, exerting something sounds like it's kind of bad, right? Why don't you tell us why uh, exerting is kind of a drawback for this ability and what it means in the game. If your character is exerted, it's vulnerable now. Exerted characters are the only ones that can be challenged by your opponent. So if you wanted to, say, keep your Stitch Rockstar in play, you would just... Uh, not touch it, just leave it there, play other characters, not exert your Stitch at all, and then your opponent wouldn't be able to challenge it. But when you're playing these characters alongside it, your one or two cost characters to draw cards, you have to exert them to draw cards, which means your opponent can just challenge them right away. But, you know, the awesome part about Stitch is that you already drew the cards. So they're replacing themselves and you're just kind of overwhelming your opponent with all these adoring fans. Yeah, I, I think that that, to me, is the, the biggest draw of Stitch is that it allows you to kind of fill your deck with these really cheap ones and twos. And as the game progresses, they still maintain value, whereas in like a more traditional style deck, 
you know, if you're drawing one of those one drops or two drops later in the game, like you're just not competing with the sevens, eights, and nines that the control decks or the ramp decks are putting out. Whereas Stitch really just puts you into overdrive and like makes them all replace themselves. It's just such a cool card. Yeah, it's really fun to play with. You just empty right. your hand, but then at the end, your hand isn't empty. Okay, so that's Amber and Amber's identity, roughly. Uh, let's talk about Amethyst, the kind of evil faction. Uh, tell me what uh, what it's about and uh, explain one of the cards or two of the cards for me. Yeah, so Amber, uh, Amber has a few different things going on. Um, by far the standout card that uh, people identify with uh, Amber in their heads is Friends on the Other Side, which is a three-cost action. It's a song, and it just says draw two cards. Uh, this is pretty unique in the game right now. This is the only card that just uh, straight up draws cards without other than some characters with uh, conditions on them. And since it's a song, you can play it without uh, paying any ink, which just feels really good when you just get to exert your three-cost character, draw some cards, and then already have the ink available to play them. Now, so, quick question for you. Am yeah. I allowed to play a three-drop creature, a three-drop character, and then use that to play this card, the friends on the other side, on that turn? No. So songs go by the... Uh, if you actually read the reminder text of a song, it says a character with cost three or more can exert to sing the song for free. So it's not you playing the song, it's your character singing it. Yeah. So they kind of have to be there, just like if they wanted to challenge a quest. Awesome. Now, the song mechanic seems really nice. And uh, I know that there's uh, a bunch of different songs that I've been able to see and play with myself. Um, are there songs in every one of the factions in every one of the colors? Or are songs just a couple of different uh, colors? Yeah, so I believe the numbers are there are 12 songs in the first chapter. Uh, most colors have two. Amber has three songs and Ruby only has one. Okay, so they all have at least one. So that's nice. Um, all right. So tell me a little bit more about Amethyst and what it means to be Amethyst. As far as the rest of uh, Amethyst's abilities, um, there's a few different things going on. Uh, it's mostly individual interesting cards. Like, um, this deck itself has uh, Magic Broom, Bucket Brigade, and Mickey Mouse Wayward Sorcerer that actually uh, reference each other. Mickey, uh, Mickey Mouse Wayward Sorcerer says you pay one less to play Broom characters, and whenever your Broom characters are banished in a challenge, you can return them to your hand. Nice! So you got this Fantasia thing going on. Uh, you just keep sending in the Brooms, they keep coming back. That's um, cool. So if you put those cards uh, in your deck, if you were playing Constructed, you would be able to play four Mickey Mouse and four Brooms. That's a lot of your deck at that point that's kind of devoted to this Broom engine. Um, other than that, there's... Yeah, there's a villainous thing going on. Uh, it's not all villains, though, right? I've actually been looking over more of the cards as I talk about this. I, I might have spoken out of turn. To me, what it feels like is that these characters are just like way more heavily based on magic itself like a lot of the sure. items from beauty and the beast that came to life um like i'm looking yeah. at uh right now i'm looking at the magic brooms obviously with mickey mouse are really cool but even the mickey mouse is wayward sorcerer right so he's just like yep you know he's got a fire staff going on and and that seems pretty sweet um but we start to see the other characters that are like the top end and we're getting to jafar wicked sorcerer so like you have this really 
magic dense theme in this and and it seems that like yeah. maybe it's more just like using magic to to create stuff leans evil because it's just really powerful and when people get access to a lot of power that just leads them down the dark path and uh you yeah. know we we see uh like flotsam and jetsam in the deck which is really cool the two eels from uh ursula's pack and then the big baddie at the at the top end the one that i think is one of the coolest cards in the game dr Facilier, how do I say that? I actually haven't seen the movie. Uh, I'm gonna Facilier. Facilier, excuse me. I guess it's you know French or by you know, it is. Cajun. Yeah. But right. uh, seven mana, Doctor Facilier, Agent Provocateur, Shift Five, so it can shift on a different uh, Doctor Facilier, and there's a couple of them. Uh, so four five, right. and uh, it says Into the Shadows. Whenever one of your other characters is banished in a challenge, you may return that card to your hand. It taps for three or exerts for three uh, lore when you quest. So th what this means yeah. is that if um, if you use one of your creatures to challenge an opposing creature and your creature dies, instead of going to your discard pile, it goes back to your hand. This is going to be really powerful with uh, another ability we haven't talked about yet, and it's called Rush. And Rush is an ability that allows you to play a creature and it can uh, challenge your opponent's creatures that are exhausted that turn and so it kind of creates this repeatable uh kill effect where you can just like challenge all your opponent's creatures in one turn and just mow them down yeah yeah uh rush with dr facilier is certainly splashy but honestly just getting this thing into play there's like not a lot your opponent can do if you just you start challenging their characters get them off the board and then get those cards back to your hand or even just start questing with your characters like what are they going to do? They challenge them, they get some damage on their characters, and then they just go back to your hand. Yeah. You know, Facilier just kind of takes over the game. It's a pretty wild card. So we talked a little bit about uh, Friends on the other side, the three mana draw two that's a song. But uh, one other card that I think is really important to talk about is the small Maleficent. It's going to be Maleficent Sorceress yes. uh, for three ink. It can be inked. Uh, it's a two two. It quests for one lore. And when it comes into play, it says, cast my spell. When you play this character, you may draw a card. Now, we have a lot of parallels to this in Magic the Gathering. Things like Elvish Visionary, Llanowar Visionary, you know, uh, Dust Legion Zealot, Fraxian Rager, all, all, all cards like this. I feel like the um, Amethyst color is leaning into that really powerful magic that we're used to playing in, Ma in Magic the Gathering where uh, one of the most important things is what we call card advantage. And that means that your yep. raw resource count is just higher than your opponents because a lot of the things you play replace itself by drawing a card or trade it for two of your opponent's resources pretty aggressively or quickly. And when you accrue a lot of card advantage over time, multiple times, you start to see that when, when it, the time comes where you've both traded your entire board off with each other's board, you still have cards in your hand and your opponent doesn't. Yeah. And cards like Maleficent Sorceress just lean really hard into that. And I think that the Amethyst color will lean really hard into that because of Maleficent and because of friends on the other side. So I would look at those to be some of the more dominant, you know, commons and uncommons that the, that the color has access to. Right. And Maleficent actually has some more hidden upside. Oh, so it's that? like you said, it's a three cost two, two. And it's this is actually, believe it or not, Medium Maleficent, or medium-small. There's an even smaller one. Ooh. But anyway, <laughs> uh, 
you know, three cost two two, you play it, you draw a card, you're done, right? It just kind of sits there. But then next turn, you have this three cost character that can sing friends on the other side. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's like it this comes up a lot when you're uh when you're building Amethyst decks, is you just want to have these characters that maybe your opponent doesn't care about so too much, but then they they have that magic number of three to sing friends on the other side. Your opponent just gets buried in card advantage at not all that much cost to yourself. Yeah. All right. So uh, we've talked about uh, these pre-cons and we've talked a little bit about the colors. Let's talk about the types of cards that are in the game and what they mean inside of the engine. I'll start with the first one. Um, every single one of the creatures, right, are called characters. And each of these characters is a reference to a character from one of these animated Disney movies. And each of the cards is uh, an expression of one of the iterations of that character at some point in the movie. And the abilities of that character reflect what's going on in that part of the movie and their role in what's going on in that part of the movie. Um, Characters can range from the most iconic to Mickey Mouse to some of the bumbling sidekicks and henchmen that you see in some of the movies that run around with the baddies think flotsman uh flotsam and jetsam those are like my favorite little micro micro villains now uh there are two other types of cards uh why don't you tell us about actions all right actions are cards that are uh kind of like instants or sorceries and magic uh when you play an action it does the thing that it says, and then you're done with it. Okay. So we talked about Dragonfire. We talked about Friends on the Other Side. You play now, this, you banish the character, you're done. Now, can I play any of these cards on my opponent's turn? No. Uh, there's none of that in Lorcana. You're playing all your stuff on your turn, and then passing the turn and seeing what your opponent can do. Cool, cool. All right, now, I know that there are some actions that uh, are songs where you can tap a creature to help pay for them based on the cost of the card or the requirement of the right. song itself, but are all actions songs? No, there's actually, there's only a handful. So there's, uh, every color has a bunch of different actions, but only, like we said, one or two songs. Okay, cool. So when you see, when you see an action that has a song on it, you kind of need to pay special attention to that because uh, you can get up to some crazy stuff with these songs, uh, have some very quote unquote action packed turns. Cool. All right. Well, the that is two of the types of cards in the game. The third type of card in the game is an item. And if we're talking in terms of Magic the Gathering, these are way closer to artifacts and enchantments. These are right. non-character permanents that come onto the battlefield and have some sort of ability. Uh, some of them say draw cards. Some of them say heal my creature, deal damage, whatever. There's just a ton of different things that these items can do. Some of them cost no mana to use. Some of them exert themselves to use. Some of them cost mana and exerting themselves to use. So uh, I think that some of these are going to be desirable. Um, I think that uh, some of them are going to be relatively weak, just depending on how good or bad the abilities are inside the engine itself. But it is one of the three primary card types. We got characters. We got actions, which are basically instant sorceries. And we got items. That are basically artifacts and enchantments. Those are the three card yeah. types. Now, we already went over the six colors, but I want to give a refresher to everyone as we are 
moving away from this part of the broadcast. So there are six colors. First up, we have Sapphire, which is blue. We have Ruby, which is red. We have Steel, which is white or metallic, you know, light metal. We have Amethyst, which is essentially black or purple. We have Emerald, which is green. And we have Amber, which is that yellow-orange uh, that, you know, my favorite card, uh, Stitch is in, the Rockstar. Yeah. So those are the six colors, and we went over a little bit about their identities. Um, but, you know, this is just our initial takes on them, and this is very broad-stroke stuff. The more that we play the game, the more we'll have a better understanding of, of these colors' roles inside the engine, pairing them with each other, finding combinations that work well together, things like that. Um, all right. So moving on to uh, the last part of our first episode, I would like you, Matt, to give me about two minutes, wax majestic, about your favorite card in the entire set. You got two minutes, go. All right. I think my favorite card in this set is Aerial Spectacular Singer. This right, is tell an me amber card. This is an amber card that costs three. You can anchor. Uh, you can anchor. Uh, she's a 2-3. She quests for one lore. She has two abilities. The first one is Singer 5. This is not a built an ability we've talked about yet. A singer ability means that the character can sing for a higher cost than uh, it, you actually spent to play the card. So Singer 5 means Ariel can exert to sing a song that costs 5 or less instead of 3 or less. Her second ability is Musical Debut. When you play this character, you look at the top four cards of your deck, you can reveal a song card and put it in your hand, and then put the rest on the bottom in any order. Uh, an Augur so, of Bolas strategy. I love me a good an, Augur of Bolas. <laughs> an Augur of Bolas strategy. So in Magic, Augur of Bolas is a very similar creature that where uh, cost three mana, you play it, you look at some of the top cards of your library, and you can reveal a certain type of card and put it into your hand. And... In Magic, Augur of Bolas is kind of famous for missing. Sure, you might have like a lot of instance or sorceries in your deck. Yeah. But a way like it feels way more often than it should be. You just play your Augur of Bolas, you don't see an, an instant or sorcery in the top, and you just kind of do nothing with the card. Yeah. And to be fair, Ariel can do the same thing in this game. Uh you can just play your Ariel, not get any cards off of it, and uh kind of feels like what are we doing here? So there's a couple things with that. One is that obviously you can uh, influence that by putting more and more songs in your deck. Uh, the most, the highest number of songs you can put into your deck right now is 20, because there are three amber songs. Uh, most of the other colors have two songs. And then five times four, you can play up to four of any card, uh, gets you to 20. So if you really wanted to, you could play the maximum number of songs at 20 songs in your deck, you're, I think it's between 90 and 95% likely to hit off Ariel. That's pretty good. And yeah, that gets to the second part, which is playing this card and getting a song into your hand is extremely good. Like we looked at Maleficent. That's a three cost for a two, two to just draw a card. Ariel is a two, three, and she can also, you know, sing above her cost. She's a singer. Mm-hmm. So if you can build your deck right where you're playing Ariel, 
putting a song into your hand and then using her to sing an expensive song. That's just like a great little uh, bit of value you can get into your deck. Uh, and she just has such an impact on deck building. Uh, she's been really interesting to think about because the other interesting thing is some of these songs you might be putting into your deck are not necessarily songs that you want to cast all that much. Uh, for example, Hakuna Matata, that's a four-cost song that just says remove up to three damage from each of your characters. And sometimes that can be pretty good, but sometimes, you know, your characters don't have damage on them. You don't really want to exert your character to play this card just to remove a couple damage. But the interesting thing about Lorcana as a whole is that Hakuna Matata is inkable. So you can just... You don't want to cast Hakuna yeah. Matata? You can just play it as ink. And then when you start getting into Ariel, you're playing this card, putting Hakuna Matata into your hand, and the next turn you just get to ink that card that you didn't have to draw naturally, yeah. and you're just up a card regardless of whether the song you put in your hand was even would have had any effect on the game. You just played Ariel to get your ink for next turn. And you're you feel way ahead. Yeah, I mean, raw resource versus a situational card, right? You just pick whichever is more valuable at the time and Ariel lets you yeah. find them. And she can sing the good ones, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's All right. when we when we start getting into deck building, there's some uh wild stuff that Ariel can do if you really bring it build into that uh singer five ability. All right, so my favorite card, we already talked a little bit about it. Stitch Rockstar is the one I yeah. want. It's like my favorite competitive card, I think. Uh, but my favorite overall card, when you take in the the moment in the story, the card itself, the history of the card, the history of the character, I got to go with Tinkerbell Great Fairy. So Tinkerbell yeah. Great Fairy. Giant fairy. Uh, sorry, Tinkerbell Giant Fairy. Uh, it's uh, six ink, and it is inkable. It's a four five two. That means that's four power, five toughness, and quest for two lore. Uh, Tinkerbell Great uh, Giant Fairy has shift four, which means you can pay four and then shift it onto a different Tinkerbell. Uh, first ability is called Rock the Boat. When you play this character, deal one damage to each opposing character. <sighs> nice little creature rush you got going there, family. That's gonna be uh, bang 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 bang. Shoot the cannons yep. off. Second one is Puny Pirate. And she's holding the pirate ship in one of the pictures, and she's, like, looking down at the fleet in another, like she's about to squash yep. them into the ocean. Uh, during your turn, whenever this character banishes another creature in a challenge, you may deal two damage to chosen opposing character. That means that if you shift this, you deal one to everything, and then you go and immediately challenge and kill something, you get to deal two damage to another character. So shifting yep. with this just seems so absurdly powerful. Um, and like, if this is my ideal shift card because you get the immediate payoff yes. from the two damage, Absolutely. which essentially undoes the uh, negative effect of shift, which is just like kind of losing a resource in, in the muddle. Yeah, and that was uh, something we also forgot to mention uh, about the shift mechanic is if something happens to the shifted card you played, both of those cards go to the same place. Ooh. So if if I shift my stitch onto another stitch and then you play Dragonfire on my stitch, uh, both of those cards get banished. They're just out of there. So uh, in card advantage terms, uh, you just two for one me. You got rid of two of my cards for one of yours. Now, I know that yeah. there are some cards that 
return cards to your hand, and there are some that put cards into your opponent's inkwell. And so what happens if you target a shift character with one of those? Yeah, so the same thing. Both of those cards go to the same place. So uh, let it go, like we talked about earlier. If you let, if you were to let it go, my Stitch Rockstar, uh, both of the stitches would go into my inkwell, and I would now have two extra ink instead of just one. All right. Well, those are our favorite cards from Lorcana so far. Matt, this has been a really fun first episode recording with you. Uh, yeah. I know that you're very excited about playing with, brewing with, talking about Lorcana. I'm right there in the same boat with you. And uh, I hope that you watching at home were able to pick up and learn a lot of stuff from this opening broadcast. We're just trying to essentially explain the game to you in the best way that we know how. Uh, as we progress on the channel, we're going to get more in-depth into the competitive side of things. We're going to be bringing you guys gameplay between uh, you know decks that we're building, decks that we see other content creators build. And eventually, we're going to be hosting, running, participating in tournaments, and then we're going to be bringing you the metagame. We're going to be showing you the best decks against each other as we explore this awesome new card game, Disney's Lorcana from Robinsberger, over the course of maybe the next few years. Who knows? But uh, this has been episode one of The Lost Boys. Matt, do you have anything final to say before we sign off? Uh, no, I'm just, like you said, I'm super excited to get start you know, getting into the nitty gritty of uh, the competitive metagame, what we might start looking at and get out to some tournaments, like you said. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Lost Boys L.O.R., I believe. Yep, uh, uh, I did a L.O.R. as the a shorthand form of Lorcana. So Lost Boys L.O.R. Yep. Uh, you can also check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Lost Boys. I just made all this today. I, I might be saying it wrong. Uh, we're going to have links to all of our socials in the show notes, so make sure to check those out. But we're on Twitter, Patreon, and YouTube. Uh, this is going to be going up on YouTube, um, and uh, I hope that uh, y'all enjoyed it. But for episode number one of The Lost Boys, I'm Tandy. That's Bo Matt Courier. Say bye, Matt. Bye, Matt. See you.